Hi, Carson. This is your first name, right? Yep. Yep. The most interesting question is, what was your first computer? What was my first computer? I uh, The first computer I remember as a computer computer was an Apple II GS, um, mm -hmm. which was the old, it was the Apple II series, and it was kind of their last one. And I had some pretty, it was better than the Mac at the time. I think it was color. And um It uh, had like a really cool paint program and stuff like that. That's what I remember. Although I know we had stuff earlier than that, but that was, I didn't really think of it as a computer at the time. Um, and uh, the first programming language that I used was uh, HyperTalk, which was the programming oh. language for HyperCard, which was an old uh, development environment on the Mac. Um, and but it so, was revolutionary, right? I mean, it was Hyper, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was Hypermedia, which we'll probably talk about a fair bit in this uh, discussion. Um, it was Hypermedia, but local. There was no network without plugins or something like that. And so, um, but you had hyperlinks and stuff like that. And you also had a scripting language. That scripting language was called HyperTalk. And um, mm -hmm. I've actually created a programming language called HyperScript that is based okay. on HyperTalk at some level. Okay. So we could talk, mm -hmm. maybe talk about that near the end. And you uh, and you started uh, just programming right away, or gaming, or what was your no? Um, I was never very good at games. That was actually uh, a superpower of mine. Was I was just always terrible at video games. I was good at Mario Kart and Street Fighter, but that was about it. Um, and so I had a lot more time than my friends <laughs> to program because I just couldn't play games at their level. Like Golden Eyes, when I tapped out, I was like, "This is just too much for me." Um, so, uh, but I, I, I started program. I mean, I programmed, you know, in, in as much as it is programming with HyperCard. And then I went to college thinking I'd be a, a computer programmer because I was uh, pretty good at it um, compared to my friends. And I went to, I went to Berkeley for undergrad and I found out just what a, an actual good programmer is pretty quickly there and uh, figured out I wasn't necessarily on that level. Um, And uh, so I ended up kind of tumbling around a little bit at Berkeley, but I eventually ended up getting a master's degree in computer science. And the programming language that I ended up working in the most early on was Java. So I sort of grew up, I grew up with Java. Um, I grew up with that, the object-oriented, the excitement around object-oriented programming kind of in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, and so that's where I came out of. Um, But why you started programming at all with the HyperCard, and why HyperCard? Um, it was just there, and I could do neat stuff with it. I could put, you know, I put together some uh, simple little mini apps for people. It was just it was it really blurs the line between, you know, it's kind of like small talk in the sense that the development mm -hmm. environment is the is also the evaluation environment. So it's all kind of one thing, and so you set everything up the way you want it, and then you just say, okay, here you go. And, uh, so I just had, you know, I had neighbors that I think I got paid a little bit every once in a while for building little contact, basically contact apps and stuff like that. Um, but I just liked it. I like messing around with it. Uh, it's fun to make stuff work. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I don't know, just, uh, I, I enjoy, I'm glad I've ended up programming. Um, there were a lot of different directions my life could have gone and uh, I just ended up sticking with programming. And so. That's good. Okay. Well, what is your next language? So straight Java or what was between HyperCart hyper and... I, I did a little bit of basic, um, like, okay. like uh, especially Visual Basic for applications, VBA. Um, 
and I programmed in that because um, I, 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 my first job was with a consulting company and they built these big spreadsheet models. And uh, so VBA, I mean, it doesn't have the best reputation, but there's a lot about it that I really liked. Um, uh, especially the, it, had, it shared with HyperCard this idea of you could double click on a button and see the code that was associated with the button, which is a really fantastic development experience. Um, and so I ended up writing a lot of code and I was, I could program, which was unusual in the consulting company I was at. And so I ended up writing a huge amount of code in, you know, very elaborate models for, um, I think for pharmaceutical companies, unfortunately, but, um, so that's what I did right out of, uh, college, but I, I had learned, I had learned Java in college a little bit. And that was, that was where the excitement was in 99 and 2000. And so, uh, so I tried to, and I pretty quickly pivoted to a job where I could work in Java a lot more. And that was back during the old, like J2E one point, like EJB 1.0 world. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I ended up pivoting into that. I'm working in that world for about a decade. So you started with, um, with the HyperTalk and then you studied basically, and then you learned Java. And after the study, you became consultant and did a little bit of VBA work, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, just kind of a... So um, you did a lot of stuff with J2E or EGBs or not? Um, I did a little bit with it. Uh, I, okay. Uh, with 1.0, um, by the time, so I went to grad school and, uh, and then when I graduated from grad school, I got a job in a Java shop, but they kind of had their own thing that they had built. And so they had their own database layer and their own web layer and all that sort of stuff. And so I didn't, during, the, I would say the meat of my Java career, I, I didn't work with J2E because we just, I worked on a platform team that was building sort of a, okay. a a separate version of it, a little bit different take on it. And was it nice? Uh, yeah, I worked on a programming language called, it's called Gosu now, it was called Gscript at the time, um, which is, you probably remember early on in uh, the J2E, or not early on, but like right around 2007, 2008, there was just this this explosion of programming language for the JVM. Of course. Right? So you had um, Clojure come along, Kotlin was just starting to get going, uh, Scala was there, uh, uh, Groovy, uh, JRuby was really big for for a while, um, and uh, so Gosu was a, a smaller player in that constellation of uh, programming languages. How, how it's called? I never heard. It's of called it. Gosu. Um, Gosu. Gosu. Yeah. If that. you go to gosulang.github.io, you can see a very old and unupdated okay uh, thing on it, and it was just it was another scripting language for the JVM. It, we ended up uh, compiling it down to bytecode, which um, I think may have actually ended up being probably not worth it, um, just because of the you know just for reasons I can go into later. But um, but it was good for me because I teach at a university here in Montana, and I teach compilers, and so I can <laughs> we target the JVM for our compiler. Um, because I, I just have experience with that. And so it's kind of nice to have the students actually building a scripting language that produces bytecode. So, um, but uh, it was... So you are teaching, so you are teaching at, at the university? Yeah, right? I teach at Montana State here up here in Montana. Okay. So, um, but it was a really good experience. I mean, it was nice. You know, it, it wasn't the best probably for my resume, but the fact we were basically building our own version of J2E gave me a lot of pretty low level experience with 
yeah. database code mm-hmm. and you know we kind of built like two or three different web frameworks and um some of the ideas that ended up in htmx kind of came out of that work so um ah um everyone built back then you know that their own frameworks yeah. and uh, you had to build a web framework at least <laughs> so this was uh, a must yep. and uh database layer you know i would say at least you build something you know like uh, abstract data access object pattern yep. Then with some factory and generic factory, there was a lot of discussion whether it should be, you know, the real factory or, or abstract factory. Yep. And then, of course, are lots of value objects which were named, uh, which wrongly, wrongly actually were data transfer object. Remember? Yep. Back then, you know, yeah. discussion value object versus data transfer yep. object. DTOs. And um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you know, the huge discussion whether we should, uh, you know, um, uh, um, decouple the layers yeah. this was the, the more layers you had on the on the slides the better yeah. it was um so interesting so you are actually a, a hardcore java developer yeah i feel like i know the language pretty well um i haven't been able to program in it professionally i'm actually i just started so um what happened after uh this is just i'm giving you my biography here but um uh after i was working at that company that was pretty hardcore java stuff i ended up uh, starting a company and we started it. This was, it was started in like 2012. And uh, in 2012, if you were creating a startup, you did it in rails in Ruby on rails. That was just what everyone did. (laughs) And so we did it. And so I got, I, so I spent about a decade working in the Ruby community and, um, I have to admit, I never felt super at home there. It's a very dynamic, and uh funky language and there's some neat stuff you can do with it um it does have good closure support and stuff like that so that's nice um but uh i just never really was a ruby person um i spent a decade doing it i know ruby pretty well now um but i always felt like i was kind of a fish out of water i always preferred java um and uh and c sharp like programming languages like this are a little more structured um, but not as structured as some of the more formal functional languages which just always Mm -hmm. i just didn't think that way so i grew up you know again during the object-oriented hype and i still just think that way i just tend to think in terms of objects i know people uh i run into a lot of people online who don't like that (laughs) and they think it ends up leading to spaghetti code and I do think there is a tendency to over-architect things um, in the Java community and in this, most of the object-oriented yeah. world. Um, but on the other hand, I really like uh, just thinking in terms of objects. Uh, Bruce Eckel wrote, was it Thinking in Java? Yeah, Thinking in yeah. Java. And, and yeah. uh, so um, that's where I come from as far as like just my mindset and how I tend to think about abstracting problems and so forth. Yeah, Um Interestingly, so I spent lots of time in, I would say, Jakarta right now in micro profile, yep. uh, but uh, in interesting environment like you no know, serverless and uh, Fargate and, mm-hmm. um, and 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 environments yeah. like these. And uh, there are not lots of objects actually. Yeah. So what w- what happens right now in Java? We have dependency injection, but actually no interfaces. The classes are simple. Inheritance is rare yep. actually. So, uh, but uh, but it's very productive. So uh, the code looks um, almost like you know beginner code in 1995. Yeah. If we just write you know simple Java classes, yeah. but it's a good yeah. thing because um, uh, you know Java records, um, for instance, a simplified thing. So you can be very pragmatic with Java yeah. right now. And the interesting part is everyone understands the code because there's no magic, yeah. right? So I mean, it is really hard to write like you know magic code in Java. 
So you can you can write a simple code which everyone understands, and uh, the performance is just great. So we actually outperform all the scripting languages, which is really good in the clouds because um, you can save time. If you save yeah. time, you save money. So uh, this is what there's lots to do in the last you know a few years with Java in the yeah. clouds. Um, but interesting. So this is Bruce Eccles in you know the um, how the book uh, Domain Driven Design by um, by who uh, I think it was Mr. Evans, mm. right? And uh, this this book was about you know um uh, not only object orientation rather than domain driven design. And this is harder uh, or harder. Uh, it's not always needed in in uh, you know database driven applications yeah. or or data driven applications. So this is this is a difference. If you are working in an insurance company and you have you know lots of polymorphic behavior, mm-hmm. this is something different. But um, what what I see is that people are often overthinking the enterprise yep. architecture and you have a lots of stuff which has nothing to do with yep. the business this is my observation in java yeah i agree with that i think that that's a problem that you have it just java and I, I really think j2e i mean you know i can talk about there's lots of as much as i like java there's a lot of stuff that they i think did wrong and i i want to preface everything that i'm about to say with the fact that Java and the people who worked on Java got an incredible amount of things correct. Like I teach C, like I, I help students learn how to program in C. And if you know C, like the Java string class, the Java like linked list and array list class, the map, like the, the fact that any object in a JVM can be a key and a hash map was just absolutely brilliant. That's a brilliant idea. And it, yes, it's a pain to get right sometimes, but it's just such a brilliant idea. So they got a huge amount of stuff absolutely right. On the other hand, and mm-hmm. that's again, as preface to this, on the other hand, I feel like um, they missed on a couple of APIs. So IO is finally better now than it used to be for simple stuff. Um, but yeah. you know, they overapplied patterns, the IO, a library is a classic example in Java. They just, for whatever, you know, they, they, got, yeah, they just got a hold of the decorator pattern and that was what they were going to do. And the decorator pattern makes sense in complicated situations where you have really, you really have to dynamically build up what you're doing, but it sure is a pain in the rear end to deal with if uh, you just want to read a file <laughs> as a string. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and yeah. uh, I think, you know, they, I, I have to say, I think they made a little bit of a mistake with the streams API too, and that they put a bunch of really useful functional transform methods kind of over on this other thing when, where you really want them for the most part is in collections. And um, so these, and I just, there's like all these little things that, you know, you go to the Ruby people or the JavaScript people or whatever, and they look at it and they're like, what is a stream? I just want to map this array to something else. Why am I doing all this crazy stuff? And uh, so I think Java and, you know, that coupled with the J2EE, I would say mistake of 1.0, where they really were like, we're going to take object-oriented programming and we're going to put it on the network. EJBs are these object-oriented things and they're going to live on the net and it's going to be completely abstracted away where they live. And there's going to be, you know, you remember all these roles they were going to have, like they were going to be your bean administrators yeah, and all this stuff. Assembler, yeah, deployer. Exactly. And, and it just was like, this is never going to work. And it was super complicated. And I feel like Java has had its, the Java community has had a tough time kicking that. There's, 
there, there, you know, I think microservices are probably helping with that. I also think that um, there are some sort of libraries, some smaller libraries like Javelin jumps out at me. If you've ever seen Javelin, the web framework has a very focused, you know, uh, simple uh, uh, piece of infrastructure for doing uh, for doing web apps. Just it, all it does is web routing, and that's it. Um, Job Runner, if you've seen Job Runner, that's a, a no. But Javelin is uh, older, right? Javelin, Javelin's not that. I mean, it's it's. I think it's in 4.0, so it's been around for a little bit. Um, but it's just more focused. Yeah, I think it's like 2000 or something. Has it like been around this. that long? Was, uh, right? I don't think so, because there was there was I Spark so. Java, which I think Javelin was a kind of a fork of or a, a, a rewrite of, but I don't remember the exact details. But a Javelin, okay, this is Javelin. This is a Kotlin yeah. based, but this was also it was like pers Javelin was uh, also a persistence framework. Okay. I think I know, but this yeah, is this is this is uh, this yeah, is this is a newer newer one. Um, and I so I see I see flickers of hope from that perspective that there's because I you know I, I am a Java developer at the end of the day, and I would, I'd like to work in Java a bunch. I'm actually working on a. I'm, I consult now, and I work for a client who has a Play One app. I don't know if you remember the old Play, Play, oh, Play yeah, One. Oh, yeah, yeah. Play was the huge revolution, yeah. you know, that we, you could have uh, Scala routes, and you can have, you know, RESTful yeah. interfaces, and everything was supposed to be yeah. type-safe. Well, that's two. That's Play Two. Play One was the original version of Play, and Play One was basically like Java on Rails. It was a straight copy of Ruby on Rails for Java. And they did a really good job with it. There's some stuff in there that's a little janky, but they did a good job with it. But it's been discontinued. And so I'm working on it for a company that's still limping along on it right okay. now. Um, but okay, but this is really old. It's like a yeah. years, right? Yeah, it's it's very old, but it works. And uh, they 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 do keep updating it, they, you know, with security releases and so forth. So, um, But the first Rails clone was actually Grails, right? Grails, I yeah. Grails? Yep. Yeah, groovy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, you interest me because you are the also you have a Ruby experience. So yeah, yeah. Around and... two, 2010, around 2010, I got lots of questions. Why I'm doing Java? Because Java will die. Uh, uh, Rails will win. Yep. And then it became very suddenly um, almost forgotten language, right? So I mean, I Ruby right now is this almost as I, I, I rarely see it in projects. So I would say ten years ago, I, I saw Ruby everywhere. Everyone tried to do yep. something with Ruby. And uh, and now it disappeared. Why? I mean, why back then everyone talked about Ruby, how great it is, and, uh, and and now it just disappeared. Yeah. Well, I think a couple things. Number one, I think the Ruby language is actually pretty weak as okay. far as a general purpose language. I think it's it's a very creative language. It's a very flexible, and you can do metadata programming very easily in it. There's some very interesting stuff in it, but it's just a little, it's just weird. It's just a weird mm -hmm. programming language. Um, and especially when JavaScript took off. Um, and, uh, and, and I mean, this has been kind of a, there's been this weird, like JavaScript took off. And I think JavaScript is what killed Rails okay. be because all the people who were super, like all this, the hipsters who were super excited about Ruby got super excited about Node and JavaScript. And okay. JavaScript has a lot of the same open, creative, kind of loosey-goosey infrastructure um, available that Ruby had. And so why would you bother with uh, this 
uh, you know, so, somewhat strange programming language. There was CoffeeScript in there too. I don't know if you remember CoffeeScript. Yeah, yeah CoffeeScript. This was like an attempt <sighs> to make uh, JavaScript a little bit more like Ruby, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so uh, I just think it was just a little too weird and a little too out there. And so I don't. I think as soon as JavaScript became a viable server side framework, the people, you know, the, the people in San Francisco and the Bay Area kind of just, you know, you could yeah. see it. They just went the JavaScript direction and then that was it for Ruby and, and Rails. Um, but still, the uh, argument over and over again, Rails and, 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 and Ruby was back then, you know, the aesthetics and the beauty of the language. So this is what I remember. Well, there, you know, always arguments how beautiful it is and the DSLs and whatever you can do. And I never found uh, um, time actually to learn it really. So yeah. <laughs> now I save yeah. some time. But I yeah. still know small uh, old books laying around you know, about rails or whatever, and yeah. I, I wanted to read them, but never found time actually to 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 do it. Yeah, I like. I think Rails is really well done. There's some aspects mm -hmm. of it that are really very well done. Um, and Ruby's not. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to be too negative on it. No, no. Um, it's just, and I do think you could, particularly you know earlier on, you did have the ability to make DSLs in a way supports some something like coroutines which makes it possible to kind of build these control structure like things that um make a lot of sense but it's not that much better <laughs> at the end of the day and javascript has json baked in and you know so you can just kind of you can half do whatever you want in that and then it's mm -hmm. ubiquitous and so i just think that sucked all the air out of that okay world and then you also ran into a lot of scaling problems with rails like at the end you know at the end of the day it's a it's a vm written by like a couple people one you know a guy in japan <laughs> and yeah just so i just don't think it had the institutional support Mets was his name right yeah, Mats. 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 He's still Mats. he's still around. Mm -hmm. Mats. He's still around. Um, and a, and a mm -hmm. wonderful person. But you know, again, I don't want to be too negative on Ruby. Anyone who likes Ruby, it's all good. No, um, I'm just curious because back then, really, it was like Java is dead and Rails is like everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. Constant questions. You know why we are still doing Java? I'm so okay because yeah. this is what I know. And there's lots of requests, and then it disappeared. <laughs> I was just curious why. Yeah, right? because uh, yeah, yeah. Now we clarified that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to get. I think it's just it was a little too weird of a programming language. So. Okay. And then JavaScript, those two things together, kind of ended up crushing it. What happened but now? Then? And then JavaScript. This is the interesting thing: is that JavaScript actually peaked. Like people, a lot of people don't realize this, but JavaScript peaked <laughs> probably around 2015. And uh, the total number of GitHub projects that are done in JavaScript has been trending down. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and Python is really what has kind of blown up uh, mm -hmm. lately. And so Python now, uh, I'm sad to report as a Java developer, is actually uh, a more popular programming language than Java. Java never really lost the seat to JavaScript. I don't think it did anyways, but... Um, but uh, but JavaScript has gone down, and I think I believe it goes Python, Java, JavaScript now as far as popularity mm -hmm. of programming languages, and so that I think that was unexpected. Um, but Python has really caught this wave of, first of all, here in the United States, Python is often the first programming language that is taught, and so okay. you have a you have a huge number of undergraduates who are using it. 
Um, and then uh, Python has a sort of a few sort of Rails equivalents. Um, the biggest ones probably that I'm aware of is Django, which is kind of this very old school web framework written in Python. And um, are you actually aware of the YouTube video? It was like, uh, how, how was it? Snakes versus something. This was like, you know, DHH versus mm. the Django committer. Mm. So there was like, yeah. you know, shootout, uh, Rails versus yeah. Django. This was, a, yeah. I remember that. I, I watched okay. this. I was just, it was like, you know, because Django was like a CMS mm -hmm. was built um, for, I think, newspapers. Cities. Newspapers. 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 Yeah. Newspapers, exactly. There was the history yeah. of Django, so which, which was. And uh, he also know um, the. Um, Creator of Django, I also explained what, why the name, and it turned out that it was like a guitar player, right? So the Django, uh, yeah, were interesting yeah. stories. You have to watch it. Maybe you will find it on YouTube. It's like a Django versus uh, Rails. Yeah, I'll go check that out. I'd be interested to see. They have very different flavors, and um, mm -hmm. I, you know, HTMX, which we'll 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 get to eventually. Um, HTMX competes with a uh, to an extent to a library that Thirty Seven Signals and DHH created, yeah, with stimulus. Well, I would say HyperScript competes with stimulus, okay. but just Turbo, Turbo in general, Turbo Dev, okay. Turbo, Turbo Links, and then just I think they just call it Turbo now. Is it kind of competes, or it does something similar to what HTMX does. And what's interesting about that, and then what is interesting about contrasting Rails and Django, is that in both cases you can see a pretty d drastic philosophical difference between me and DHH's approach, or 37 Signals, which is informed by his um, design sensibilities. And then also with Rails, you can see the difference the difference between Rails and Django. In Django, you have to do stuff like everything's explicit, and it's you have to do stuff. Whereas in Rails, there's a lot of magic. So you just kind of add something here, and then boom, it all convention just sort of works. over configuration, right? Exactly, exactly. And so uh, there's it's it's just it's interesting to me. And I just to bring it full circle, um, the HTMX has been picked up by the Django community. How you started HTML, how, how HTMX happened? How did HTMX happen? Okay. Um, so uh, HTMX, how did it happen? Well, uh, the, the genesis of HTMX, it was originally called Intercooler JS. And the year was 2012 or 2013. It was about a decade ago. And um, I was writing, I was building a, a you know, web app and I was trying to sort a table. <laughs> I was just trying to get a table to sort. And I was doing it in JavaScript because all the cool kids in 2013 were sorting in JavaScript. And it took forever. It just was like, it would grind my machine to a halt. And I was, uh, I couldn't make it perform. And I, you know, I'm a pretty good programmer. I know most of the tricks and I just, you know, I couldn't make it work. Um, and, uh, Almost out of desperation, I just said. So you sorted you know, the DOM DOM elements, or what do you sort? Yeah, I was I was sorting okay. rows, so I was doing a comparison okay. of rows and flipping them around, and I probably was doing it wrong. I'm sure there was like some undocumented hack, but I had gone through most of the stuff. You know, I was doing quick sort. And in 2012, you didn't use jQuery back then. I was using jQuery. Um, I was using jQuery. I was using okay. jQuery. Um, but uh, I, uh, for whatever reason, I just the the table was too big, just was too okay. big. And so browsers. Oh, what I remember right now, we had a problem with Internet Explorer. Yeah. So if the table was too big, just the rendering of the table took like one minute. 
So yeah. we were in project where just you know, just loading the table was yep. really slow. And we thought, you know, our backend is slow. We thought, we, we, and then we just like, look, we just store everything as plain HTML. So, you know, no interaction with the backend. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it took on the, on the um, how it's called, Internet Explorer, yeah? not Edge yeah. Internet Explorer. And it took, I think, 60 seconds until it rendered. And Chrome was yep. fine. Chrome was always to make it faster. Um, Firefox a little, a little bit slower, and the yep. Internet Explorer was was that slow back then. So yeah, yeah. So I was that's what I'm sure that's what I was running into. Um, so almost out of desperation, I ended up just jQuery. So I was program. I, I was doing a lot of jQuery work in 2012, and uh, so what I did is I just said, okay, I'm just going to do this on the server side. And there was this jQuery.fetch or jQuery. I forget what get. I don't remember what it was, but it was a way to just like basically issue a request and stick it into the DOM. And um, so, uh, so I used that, and it actually ended up performing well. Um, and so it let me achieve this ability to sort a table. I was doing it server side, but it ended up being faster um, than the VM, the JavaScript VM that was available at the time on the client side. And um, I think this is fetch. This was, yeah. the, I think it was fetch because uh, yeah. the, we have fetch right now, you know, in the in the standard. Yeah. yeah. And this was like a trick you could you could you could show that uh, you can replace and you know, always a standard jQuery. So this was this yeah. was the trick back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me. I'll look really quick. jQuery is it fetch or like dollar dot something. Yeah. I, I don't remember. It's it was dot get. Yeah. It get. was dot dot get. Okay. Um, was that it? Ah, boy, I don't remember. There is a way. Anyways, so um, mm -hmm. basically what I what I decided to do, and so I was like, oh, this is cool. And so I started using that trick in other places. You know, I was like, instead of, uh, I started just pulling down like, oh, you know, oh, this is cool. I'll pull down a form and I'll jam a form into a into the page, you know, but I won't build the form in HTML or in JavaScript. I'll just render it because I was using Rails and Rails had really nice form libraries and all that stuff. And so I'll just render it over there and then slam it into the DOM. And it ended up that I, you know, I, I, I created enough functionality because I added, oh, I need this, I need that, okay, whatever. And um, it just ended up coming to a point where I was like, you know what, this is a library. I'm going to release this as a library. And so I, I bundled it up. I called it intercooler.js. Um, which was a take on TurboLinks. So TurboLinks was kind of popular in the Ruby community. And that was just, that was a way to basically boost navigation speed. Um, but it wasn't a full-fledged, uh, it wasn't a full-fledged library. So uh, with Intercooler and then HTMX, which is really Intercooler 2.0, I was really trying to make things more explicit. Like, okay, I want this button to issue a post to that URL and then mm -hmm. take the content and put it in this element in the DOM. Take the result, mm -hmm. the, the response in HTML form and put that into this part of the DOM. And you so- know, You know, this reminds me of uh, JSF. Yeah, Early attempts for Ajax, because this was the yep. same. You could say, if you change this, yeah. or if you issue this event, this area will change back then. Yep. You know? JSF yeah, too, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of, a lot of ideas percolating around there. What, what I eventually came to, and, and HTMX, I think the name change reflects this fact. What I eventually came to realize is that what I, what I was trying to do, the direction I was trying to come from, was I wanted to improve HTML as hypermedia. 
So I wanted to stay as close as possible conceptually to HTML. And that's what, like JSF, for example, is this big server-side abstraction, yeah, yeah. right? And so you, you have to have like a JSF server to understand how to make that yeah, work. Yeah. And, I, yeah, yeah. and I didn't want to do that. I wanted instead to say, okay, let's look at HTML. HTML is kind of a universal language. The browser understands it. Any backend can produce it. Any backend can handle HTTP requests. And so let's focus in on HTML and try to ex expand what you can do with HTML as a hypermedia, as hypertext. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, if you, I, I like to say we're trying to remove some of the constraints that have been placed on. HTML. So for example, in HTML, there's only two elements that can issue requests, links and forms, right? That's all you got. And yeah. uh, they can really only issue network requests on clicks in the case of links or submit in the case of a form. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> and uh, they can only issue gets and posts. This is super annoying. I can't believe the HTML spec hasn't fixed this yet, but um, you can't have forms that issue puts, you know, mm -hmm. if you're following standard HTML. Um, and then finally, the, the final key in this puzzle, in my opinion, of unlocking HTML as a hypermedia is that um, the, the original hypermedia model, you had to replace the entire page. And so you have this big chunk where all this new content had to come down, even if all you were really interested in doing was like maybe updating one little small part of your UI with, for example, a form, if you wanted to edit something mm -hmm. or whatever. And so intercooler and then HTMX um, aim to address that. They aimed How at, popular was intercooler back then? Intercooler was pretty popular. I think it was at around 4,000 GitHub stars. So I'd call that a, you know, a mid-sized, it was definitely an alternative, a little bit of an, uh, a niche product, but, um, but you know, we had some, we had a lot of people using it. Um, and, 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 and the comp or your competitor or your the Turbo, how, how it's called, TurboLinks? Tur TurboLinks, yeah, TurboLinks. TurboLinks, I mean, okay. Yeah, TurboLinks, I got to think, has more people. Just because it was baked into Rails, you know? It was mm -hmm. like the, the default. Um, I haven't looked I haven't looked at what, what does Turbo.dev have going now these days? I think it's Turbo.dev, is that right? No. I'm on GitHub, TurboLinks. Uh, they have... 13,000 stars right now. Yeah, there you the go. Last release was 2018. Yeah, um, Turbo, Hotwire Dev. What's Hotwire at right now? Let's go, I don't know. I hate Hotwire, to compare. exactly. And TurboLinks is no longer under active development. Yeah, so uh, Hotwire Turbo, if you go to github.com slash hotwired slash turbo, mm -hmm. uh, is it about 37 thousand stars and that mm -hmm. you know I, I think you know as you pointed out rails has kind of faded and so i think that's hurting turbo mm -hmm. compared to turbo links um so the turbo links is sort of their older version of this so um mm -hmm. and right now uh i'll just go look real quick but i think htmx we're closing in on seven thousand stars mm -hmm. yeah we're at six point six thousand so 660 some odd thousand stars. Um, and uh, so HTMX has gotten, I mean, that's to me, that's where if you get to 10,000 stars on GitHub, that's a pretty, that's a significant project. Yeah, sure. So, so I, and I hope, um, my hope is that we can get there 
you know, probably next year at some point, maybe the year after. Um, but I'm trying to after again, this podcast. I mean, after this after podcast this, is released, yeah. you get to the next week. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the listeners, go to if you want to. I don't. I don't get paid for this. So if uh, if HTMX is interesting to you, I, I definitely. It always makes me feel better to see people starring the uh, repository. Um, yeah. So, but so that they was the should idea. Start first, you know, you start the repository first and then look at it. So this yeah, is yeah, start thing. first, ask questions. Later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but that was where it was. Both Intercooler and HTMX were coming from this. Like, let's use let's use JavaScript because that's what's available. But let's use it to improve HTML. Um, that's what I came to mm -hmm. understand. At first, I was just trying to make stuff work. But over time, I started to realize, oh, what makes HTMX different and what makes, like, there's other libraries like this. So Unpoly is a great one as well. Uh, Turbo Dev is, is very good. Or Hotwire, I should say. Dev is very good as well. Um, what makes all of them different is that they tend to make, they, they focus on HTML as a hypermedia. So that's what they're, they're not trying to replace the hypermedia model where you're exchanging hypermedia with a server. That's why uh, uh, um, the Hotwire uh, people say uh, uh, HTML on the wire. That's mm -hmm. the, I think, Hotwire short for that, where you're exchanging hypermedia with a server rather than exchanging JSON with a server. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, HTMX is definitely in that group, relatively small, but gaining some popularity, I think, um, at this point of libraries that's really focused on that. Um, and mm -hmm. so that's uh, that's sort of where that was the genesis and how it came to be. And I would say over time, I've come to understand much better, particularly in the last four years or so. The, like, I understand what hypermedia is in a way that I didn't when I was when I, earlier on in development. I mean, I always kind of you know you know what a link is, you know what a form is of all the you know HTTP whatever. Um, but really understanding how it's distinct from RPC style architectures, which is what a lot of JavaScript app, web apps, like heavy JavaScript web apps that are using, you know, something like mm -hmm. React or something like that. They are, they're actually more like old 1980s thick client apps. They're using data APIs. They're not using a hypermedia API and there are advantages and disadvantages to that. And so, um, you know, I think I've, I've developed a much better understanding of what the distinction between those two models are and why, you know, the advantages of one versus the other, um, particularly in the last few years. So. Mm -hmm. um, that's interesting because I, um, I took a look at your HTML, HTMX uh, framework or framework mm -hmm. library. And uh, for me, it was very similar to the stimulus, you know, from 37 mm. signals. So I didn't know yep. about, you know, the, the others. And, yep. um, and um, I find it's interesting idea. But um, what's actually your thoughts on custom elements? Custom elements? You, I don't... Yeah. I don't have a strong feeling about them, um, like components. Um, yeah, web components. Because um, if I look at the code, so I like actually, I'm using, um, if I'm doing something with JavaScript, what, what I'm doing, I'm using ES6 web components and lit HTML. Yep. So it's, uh, and sometimes sometimes Redux, a complete different approach. I may, I'm yep. maybe similar even. Yeah. Um, so how it works in my case? So I'm using um, so, <laughs> um, in the back end I have REST with uh, MicroProfile Jakarta E, so JAXRS basically. Yep. And in the front end, uh, how this works is I have um, a structure which is um, pre pre-UML. So um, I don't know whether you remember, in the UML, we have the boundary control entity, you know, the, mm -hmm. the icons, boundary yep. control entity. Yep. 
and from Ivor Jacobson, I think. Um, and um, uh, and uh, the boundary is the custom element. The control uh, just consumes the events and talks to the backend. Yep. Then uh, asynchronously, always asynchronously. Then um, you know it uses fetch, standard fetch, and then uh, the request comes back and updates the Redux. And then all components get notified and they get refreshed. But because we use lit HTML, it is fast enough. So for my yeah. projects, it's not, you know, sure. super fast. You cannot write a you know, game with it. But, you know, in sure. general, no problems at all. And um, this is lean. We have no external dependencies except lit HTML. Mm -hmm. And your approach is somehow similar. Yeah. We are working with data attributes. Seems yep. like a little bit more. So this is your hook, yep. right? And this is very similar, similar to stimulus or... Mm -hmm. from my perspective, is uh, similar to stimulus. And um, so what are your thoughts on my approach, on my approach? I mean, you know, the different approach. So yeah. what's the, yeah. I would say uh, it's that's it sounds like it's more of a data API approach, right? Like you're exchanging uh, an event occurs, it triggers some internal logic, you exchange JSON, a JSON payload with the backend server, you get some JSON back, that updates yes. a backing model, and then that's yes. uh, reactively reflected in the UI. Exactly. Um, and that's, that's a you know, that's I, I would call that the standard thing. Now, now you, it sounds like you have a very specialized setup for your app that sounds pretty lean, um, but that's, you know, that that's uh, uh, mod a lot of complexity. That's how React apps for the most part work. Uh, or how yeah. new apps work, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think that's fine. I'm not uh, I'm not going to say that that's a bad way of building things because it's obviously been very effective for many people. Um, yeah, and because we have the backends, right? So if I have a REST with JSON and I've already yeah. had you know the API, yeah, you will need a kind of middleware, you know. Otherwise, yep. what you will do? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and let's we'll talk. Let's table the API discussion for just a second, because what I do yeah. want to say, however, is that um, depending on your UX, needs, maybe one 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 discourse very, very briefly. What your what are your thoughts on Angular? Um, on Angular, I yeah. didn't use I didn't use it enough to have any strong thoughts. Uh, it would seem too complicated to me, and so yeah. that's a, a because big reason I think. Why I built it is only popular in German enterprise projects. This is my feeling. Okay. Because yeah. I think in US, you don't know, you, you know any project using Angular right now in US? No. No. no I mean, exactly. they're, they're, yeah, I think it had that Google oomph behind it. And so that helped. Um, yeah. But I, I, I React is very dominant in the United States. Yeah, exactly. States, this is also my so. opinion because, you know, sometimes clients ask me, you know, about uh, Angular and, and I actually... Recently, I rejected a project because I said I don't think it has a future. And yeah. React is uh, reasonable. I mean, yeah. what I explain to you right now is actually a clone of React, right? It's exactly yeah. what React does, but I'm using yeah. uh, web components. The problem is, of course, with uh, React Fiber, it's far more efficient than my approach with lit HTML, but it's yeah. good enough and I don't need any external dependency, which is always good. Yeah. But um, this Angular in Germany and Europe is very popular in huge enterprise projects. Yeah. And um, I try you know, to, to tell them, you know, no one uses actually. So uh, web developers, it's not like they're using Angular. And they say, no, no, it's yeah. not true. It's very popular. And, and I just wanted to, to hear you know, from US yeah. what, what, you know, the, the ecosystem there. It's also yeah. my opinion that React is actually hugely popular. Yeah. And, and Angular is slows a little bit down right so this is, yeah. this is my opinion yeah i think that's what you that's what you see here you do see mm -hmm. like when i see angular it is typically on large enterprise 
applications yeah. that have been started maybe like six or seven years ago. And they're like, mm-hmm. okay, we have Angular. We got to yeah. stick with it. But, you know, our developers, if you look at job postings in the United States, it's not even close. React just completely dominates everything. Yeah. Um, what's what's interests me, another question very, uh, yeah. the, um, uh, regard, regard, regarding uh, React. Yeah. Um, in one point of time, the standard becomes so powerful that Facebook could get the idea that they don't need to react anymore, right? Mm, potentially. You mean this realistic? I, I mean, because uh, if you what you are doing and uh, you know the, the lit HTML, it is very very similar to React. Yeah. So the question is, you know, um, if Facebook says, okay, now we don't need React anymore, yeah, then it becomes interesting, right? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like they've got enough invested in it. There's enough um, just okay. tech cred that I, I can't see them abandoning React. Okay. I could see them open sourcing it and doing something like the Mozilla Foundation. At this mm-hmm. point, React is just so baked into, you know, so much okay. web development. that um, You remember Google Web Toolkit? Yes, I do. <laughs> Gwen, Gwen. Yeah, this was a similar story, right? Yeah, Everyone said, "Okay, did." Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I remember. Gwit. Gwit was a terrible idea. <laughs> Holy smokes, that was a bad yeah, idea. Yeah, I, I didn't like it. And in Germany, it was a huge hysteria. It was great, I but know. even in the hosted mode, it was very slow. It was a magic on steroids, I would say, right? Yeah, and just yeah, exactly like what is going on? No one. Yeah, exactly. Can't figure anything out. It's fine though. Whatever. Google's made some pretty silly. Okay. Sorry. Um, now no. back to your HTMX. This was just I just wanted to you know to hear you. What's what's your opinion on that? But yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so um, as far as the contrast between the two, uh, hold on, I've got to. I'm trying to save some memory here. Um, what, as far as why you have trouble with memory? What, 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 yeah, running I don't know. Here, what? I, I know. I'm run, I'm on a, a new MacBook, and I think I've just been. I don't know. Maybe people. I'm just quitting everything. I can't tell what's taking it. You have to shut down HDMX. It is it consumes <laughs> yeah. so much memory. You know? HDMX is 12K. It can't yeah, but you, you are not using the data API. This it is why you have you know, to, to pull all the yeah, stuff from the server. I know, a... I know. It can't be HDMX. I, don't, I refuse to believe it. But anyways, um, <laughs> so the difference, the difference between what you're doing, so pulling data down, exchanging JSON with a, with a server um, and mm-hmm. having the, a model in the client side that's updated and then having the UI reflect, uh, uh, reactively reflect changes to that model. Um, again, I think that's the standard model that a lot of web developers okay. are used yeah. to. It's That's the way most people build web apps. Um, the, the distinction between that and something like HTMX is HTMX is exchanging hypermedia. So it sends up an HTTP request saying, I want HTML back. And um, that HTML, when it comes back, is then rendered into the DOM directly without going through any sort of uh, any sort of transformation, typically. There's hooks for doing stuff, but, but typically. Um, and when you do it that way, you're actually staying in the original uh, hypermedia model of the web. And um, so you, you get something called Hadios, um, which mm-hmm. your listeners may have heard and probably like most people have kind of ignored or just been confused about. Um, but what that stands for is hypermedia as the engine of application state. That's what that acronym stands for. And uh, what that acronym is trying to express is the fact that when, when you get back a packet of HTML and you insert it into the DOM, 
um, all the events and all the things that that HTML can do were encoded in that response. And so the endpoints can be very flexible. So um, for example, um, if you're working with, uh, this is just a, a classic example I give. If you're working with an endpoint for a bank account, just for a bank mm -hmm. account, and you're working with it in JSON and you get back uh, a response and it says, okay, account number one, two, three, you know, whatever. And then it says status overdrawn, right? Mm -hmm. So you get back that data from the server. Well, now your user interface needs to understand what that status flag means, right? You need to say, okay, status is overdrawn. So I need to hide this. I need to show this. I need to make this available, whatever. Um, and I'll, if you contrast that with an HTML response, if you get back an HTML response on an overdrawn account, it includes in it the buttons that are available on an overdrawn account. So embedded in the message is the fact that, oh, you can only make a deposit. You can't make any more withdrawals. You don't have to do anything as far as flipping state around in the user interface. Instead, all of that information is encoded in the state of the response that you get back. And so that's what is meant by hyper hypertext or hypermedia is the engine of application state. You don't uh, have side channel knowledge of a model on the back end. Instead, you just have a browser that knows how to render HTML and that's it. And whatever the representation, however it changes, is streamed in hypermedia form to the client. So yeah. great. That's great. Let so what me are summarize they? that. So what I'm doing, I'm doing like, you know, remote method invocation or CORBA from 1990. So basically, right? So I have an, an maybe a little bit, not a remote procedure call, but a nice uh, object-oriented RMI. Yep. This is what I'm doing. Yep. And what you are doing is uh, self-describing or self-descriptic API because what you get back, it's complete. So you, what you get back, it has all the links. So it mm -hmm. is stateless because yep. you know all these state transitions are already encoded in the in the representation. So you can yep. just click and and, and yeah. yeah. So uh, this is how web should be. So yep. your approach is this how HTML was meant to be, right? Right, exactly. It is, and my approach is building fat clients. So this is different. <laughs> yeah, no, it's no kidding. Yeah, it, I think fat client. Uh, yeah. This is a, no difference between my approach and an applet back then, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and so, and, and your yeah, actually, and your approach is the um, ultra thin client from Sun back then. Yeah, their vision they had, you know, that the, yep. the, the client is just you know terminal, nothing yep. there. Yeah. And and it can render the yeah this is this is now the difference so um, you are a thin client and I'm a fat client so this is yeah. the, the architectural uh, difference and um, I do um, HTOS a little bit yeah. how is it actually pronounced is it hate I have, hate I, have, I have no idea hate because up. hate is a little bit hate, you know, negative so yeah. it's a terrible yeah. it's a terrible acronym regardless of how you pronounce yeah. it. I've always said hate and, us. Mm -hmm. That's the way I've and, pronounced it. Um, uh, um, but uh, we are usually doing this a with JSON. The problem with JSON you get is really hard to describe the actions. Yep. Because if you return, let's let's say, uh, customers, right, and you would like to paginate, so at mm -hmm. the end of the request, you can say the next thing is like no, the next 10. But uh, the next 10 is different concept than the 
customer, you know what I mean? So the, yeah. the, the customer is a customer and the next 10 is an action which has nothing to do with the actual concept. In your case, it's more consistent because what you are returning is just the presentation of the entire thing. So, yep. okay, now I got the difference. The um, Okay, nice. So yeah. I, th I hope so, I, I, uh, I understood what, what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a good explanation. That's exactly right. And it's just this idea. And this is what made the web so powerful. So one thing, so what are the, what are, obviously there are disadvantages to this approach. Like it's not as interactive as a fact client. It just can't be. Um, you're exchanging hypermedia with a server. And Roy Fielding, who wrote the, his dissertation yeah. is where the terms rest and Hadios and all this stuff came out mm -hmm. of. Um, he said that in hypermedia systems, the, the, the web is designed as a, what he called a coarse grain hypermedia system, where you exchange relatively large pieces of hypermedia back and forth. And um, so, you know, HTMX and, and a, the hypermedia model isn't going to work great in every situation. So if you have a lot of state flying around in your app and highly dependent user elements, for example, like something like a spreadsheet, where if you change one value, like 15 other values might change. That's not something you want to put a server request in between. And so that's not going to work well. Um, but, you know, the closer you are to a more, I would call a more standard web app, uh, where you are exchanging with the server relatively frequently, uh, the better this model works. And there are advantages to it. So what are the advantages? Number one, um, uh, you have the, the fact that it's a, a relatively simple model. It's a, it's a relatively simple model. You don't have a lot of client code. Um, you have server-side code, but we've already got that server-side code. Um, now you have to render templates on the server, so that adds some logic there, but it removes a huge amount of front-end infrastructure that's necessary. So you don't have to have a routing layer. You don't have to have a front-end model. You let the browser and hypermedia be all of that for you. And so, but you could do this with custom elements as yeah, well. You, yeah, so without absolutely. my approach. But but this would be even this would be actually great because um what I don't like if there is too much, you know, invention. So if there yeah. are standards, I always try to pick the standard. Sure. And I just but you are using data attributes, it's not as bad, but um <laughs> Yeah, because uh, the, the, the data attributes are actually standard, right? So yeah, this is yeah. a standardized way, you know, to express uh, additional attributes. And sure. the custom elements is similar to this. This is the uh, standard extension to express tags. So yeah. I would say similar approaches, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And and anything that HTML supports, HTMX just out of the box yeah. should support. So as long as you're, you know, we try and support, for example, HTML5 validations. That's baked mm -hmm. into HTMX, so you can use HTML5 mm -hmm. validations. Um, so we, form validation, I, you mean, right? Yeah, for, form validations, exactly. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, I'm trying as much as possible to stay within the standards of HTML and really try and extend HTML as a hypermedium. Um, have, another, you, have, you, have, you, have, you, have you tried the custom elements or it was not on the radar? Or? I've never, I, yeah, I've seen them. Um, there's another project I'm working on that's using a couple, but I haven't gotten deeply into them. Um, okay. So, um, but uh, let me, the, just a couple of other advantages I want to enumerate. Um, another advantage to the, the hypermedia approach is that you don't have to worry about um, versioning your API as much. Because the messages are self-describing, once a user has entered your system, all of the endpoints are coming back and embedded in HTML. And all the actions and things they can do are embedded in HTML. 
And so um, you don't have this situation where you have to constantly be versioning your API as you might with a data API, um, because you can you can remove endpoints, you can do whatever you want to, and the hypermedia will just be updated to reflect that new state. And that's one reason why the web was so flexible, and why the web survived so well as a distributed network architecture was because of this embedded because of this flexibility. Like as long as I can get into a website, I can navigate around and I can make use of it in a way that's not true of pure data APIs, which you know obviously versioning data APIs is a big deal. You got to get it all right backwards yeah. compatibility and all this sort of stuff. Um, so that's another um, big advantage of the hypermedia approach. Um, and then the third one, the third major one that I would point out, um, particularly for Java developers, is if, uh, if you adopt hypermedia as your front-end technology, you can actually do a lot more work in Java in your back-end stack um, because now HTML, which you have to produce anyways, you're either going to produce it you know, in JavaScript on the front end somewhere, or you're going to be producing it on the back end. Well, if you move that to the back end, you can use your favorite templating library in Java, and you can write a lot more logic in Java. So you have HTML plus Java rather than HTML plus JavaScript and a big whole mass of JavaScript, and then a Java backend. So you can yeah. kind of eliminate, cut out that big ball of JavaScript right here and end up doing a lot more work in your preferred language, presumably, uh, of Java. And this is one reason why I think HTMX is very popular in the Django community is that they're very passionate about Python. They don't want to write <laughs> a ton of JavaScript and have yeah. Python kind of reduced to just being a, a, a JSON produce, you know, basically a JSON terminal. Um, and so they're, uh, the, 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 I think that's one reason why they've embraced HTMX uh, so dramatically is that it, it lets them stay there. And uh, one of my goals of coming on this podcast is to, you know, tell Java developers, hey, <laughs> you don't have to write a ton of JavaScript if you don't want it. You can actually probably spend a lot of time uh, in, uh, in Java. One and one a half more advantages. Uh, one advantage what I see also in your case is authorization. Oh, yeah. Because what you can do, uh, depending on the user role, if there's a way to transfer it to a server, and, you, and you, um, what you could do, you could render or not render specific links, right? Yep. So an admin can have, you know, more menus. Yep. Because if, in my approach, if that kind of approach, you have to do it twice. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is you, uh, you are not displaying stuff which is, um, which is not allowed for a specific role. But you still have to validate on the backend because someone could hack the server and just attempt it. In, yep. your, in your particular uh, uh, case, you're doing it once yep. in the backend, and and then you are displaying displaying whatever whatever necessary. Yep. Another thing which uh, I like is um, there's a lots of talks right now. You no know, server side rendering, which we did yep. for years in Java. You know, with Node.js or whatever component hydration or dehydrations, and this is what you are doing anyway. <laughs> so I would say. Um, so I would say kind of GSPs are back. And and uh, and um, what I did for fun a, a few years ago, I, I combined GSPs with web components mm. and uh, on my YouTube channel. So I would actually find it and, and put it. It's like a three, four years old uh, screencast. Yeah. Okay. And uh, why I did it, because in some projects we had a problem. Just imagine a basic web component, let's, mm. let's say with zip codes, right, in sure. US. Yeah, and this is actually a static thing which happens on the server. And uh, what we did, we had the you know, JSP, which creates on the fly the static elements for our web components, because otherwise we would like to you know to render the component first and call back the server 
fetched JSON and rendered on the client. So it was a lot faster and it was a simpler. And this yep. is exactly what we are doing, right? So, um, yep. uh, and and uh, my opinion is GSP was incredible fast. It was very good, but it was too much yeah. logic there. So as yeah. templating was okay, but you know, the, the scriptlets are, are gone. And now I, I don't know whether you are aware, there's the MVC framework from Jakarta E. Does mm. this could have, you know, with your framework, a, a small revival? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, I, I, I think, Java has a huge, there's just a lot of technologies like the spring community. I'm starting to see some flickers of adopting HTMX from the spring community. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, so I think there's, there are obviously a bunch of really good templating languages um, and uh, frameworks for Java. Um, and uh, there's no reason why Java can't be a, a best of breed language for producing hypermedia applications. Like, I think that's, that's a mm -hmm. and that's a goal. That's an explicit goal of mine is to like I'm coming back to Java and like hey guys we can write yeah. Java code. Then a, something happened. There is a, a Quarkus web framework call, mm, yeah. called Renard. You heard about okay. that? I have not heard of that one. now. Uh, it was released um, recently. Okay. And uh, I think it will be highly compatible with HTML uh, HTMX. Yep. And uh, Quarkus is interesting because. Um, you heard about Quarkus already? No, I've not. It's no, I, I, no. I've heard of Quarkus. It's a, it's a um, async. It's async. No, 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 no. Right? no uh, this uh, is crazy. So, um, um, Micronode and Quarkus are very similar approaches, and okay. what they are doing. Um, so you you know Java E and J two E and Jakarta yeah. E and all the others EEs. Yeah. So the difference is uh, minor difference. APIs are the same. What's different is the application servers back then, Whitefly, WebSphere, and Payara, and Glassfish, or whatever, yep. they loaded the war at runtime yep. and deployed the application at runtime. There was a thing called hot deployment. I don't know what they remember, you know, that you could uh, load yeah, all the applications. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. What Quarkus and Micronaut are doing, they're doing the same at build time. Okay. So what it means is they are looking, you know, at the application and they're reading all the deployment descriptors, whatever, and they're generating bytecode. So they look at the metadata, generate bytecode, highly efficient bytecode, so that the application um, consumes half of memory uh, comparing to application servers or Spring even. Mm. And it starts very fast. Okay. So what we are doing right now, this is um, what, I, what I told you at the beginning, is um, we are using uh, Quarkus actually in a serverless project with Lambda. Because it starts very fast, and right. uh, and it keeps going to be faster and faster. Because if the lambda is hot, the JVM optimizes the bytecode, and this is yep. we get a very very fast performance. Sure. And this is why Quarkus takes off right now, hmm. because it is the standard APIs, but it's very fast. And I don't know whether you are aware of GraalVM. You can yeah. even you can even compile Quarkus natively, yeah. and then it starts in milliseconds. And yep. uh, it only consumes a tenth of memory, so it will be very good for your machine, actually. Yeah. So it is just, you know, yeah, ten percent of the memory of com compared to 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 the application servers. Yeah. Um. Uh, oh, sorry, to Quarkus on JVM, yeah. and uh, what they released a framework called this Renard recently, mm -hmm. which runs in on, on this runtime, and this is like you know, um, what they, how they call it, you know, old idea uh, in 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 in. in somehow you know modernized mm -hmm. and um i would ping them because they're very open and it is just skyrockets as i know all major companies right now are using quarkus there's huge i am um, last year in december i had um uh, aws 
um, workshop. There are lots of attendants all over the world and uh, attendees of, from all over the world. And, and 60-70% were interested in Corcus migration. Yeah. And um, and why it is so popular? Because the companies would like to save money, you know, mm-hmm. by uh, using Quarkus in order to make the cloud cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to take a look at it. Um, it looks interesting for sure. And I'm super interested in Grawl VM. Um, that's mm-hmm. like, that's literally on the top of my to-do list just to take a look at that. So I want to mm-hmm. do that for sure. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Java is well positioned to... Uh, to do a lot of it. I think there's going to be a Java resurgence in general. It's just such a good VM and it's a good enough programming language. Um, and there's a lot of really good stuff that, coming out of Oracle at this point. Um, and some of these open source research groups that they're funding. Um, can I really quickly, before we move on though, I want to go back to something you said earlier, you talked about security and you talked about how like user authentication is is easier in a hypermedia infrastructure, and I want to I want to make one point, um, and I'm only making this because it just came up recently. I argue with people on the internet a lot. I probably shouldn't, but I do. And um, one of the arguments that I was recently in, or discussions, whatever you want to call it, um, was around uh, GraphQL. So you, mm-hmm. I'm sure, have heard of GraphQL, mm-hmm. and GraphQL is kind of being held up as this. Hey, here's our answer to this problem with API churn, right? So API churns all over the place. It's super annoying. The API engine, the backend engineers hate it. The front end engineers hate waiting for changes. So what we'll do is we'll give this query language to the front end developers to allow them to have a more expressive endpoint that they can do whatever they need to. Now they don't need to come to me to make an API change. Um, Instead, they can just update their query. And uh, so that's being pushed and it's being pushed by Facebook um, as, a, mm-hmm. as a solution to, to this API churn problem. The problem with that is that um, any, any uh, increase in expressivity that you give to the front end developer, you're also giving to users, like to application users. They can always open up a console, figure out your code, figure out where the, jQuery, where the um, GraphQL query endpoints are and start issuing queries against it. And um, so you have this tension where you want to give your front-end developers a lot of uh, expressive power, but you can't give them that much because of this security concern that that's, it's an untrusted computing environment. You're putting mm-hmm. that power into the hands of not only your front-end developers, but also anyone else who happens to be smart enough to fire up a console. And uh, what I like to point out is that in a hypermedia application, that's not the case because when you are generating hypermedia on the server side, you're actually in a trusted computing environment. And there your developers have full access to SQL or whatever, you know, whatever query language they need to build their HTML, whatever joins they have to do, whatever crazy stuff they have to do to make their particular UI very fast, it's all right there and it's all available. And so um, you don't have that same security concern that you have in the case of front-end development. So uh, I'm a a little bit of a GraphQL skeptic. um, And uh, so I just want to make that point because I think you're right on the nose that it is much easier to secure a hypermedia-based application than it is. It's much easier to make a mistake with a data-driven API if you try to give too much expressive power to the front-end. You just can't do that. So, and a lot of people, I have to say, I don't think understand that. I talk with them online and they're like, eh, whatever. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, man. Uh, what, right. what GraphQL is right. for Java developers is like you know I, I don't know what they remember. There is um, Hibernate by example mm-hmm. that was uh, in, at the yep. beginning that where you can you know prefill an an entity, send it back, and it just uh, created query query from this information and send it back. Yep. Um. There's another disadvantage of GraphQL. You 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 usually have to write the resolvers, right? So what yeah. you have to do is a GraphQL endpoint, which is standardized, is called. But usually, what you have, you don't have a GraphQL native database. There are some yeah. open source native GraphQL databases, but usually you don't have have them. So what you usually have are REST endpoints. So yeah. or your logic. So you, what you will have to do is you have to map, you know, the inputs from the GraphQL query to your actual business logic, and this can be um, also challenging. Yeah. I would say um, because you have to map it twice. So we had a discussion, you know, about layering, and this is exactly what happens. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you have to map, you know, uh, the the query to to existing REST endpoints or direct to business logic, and this yeah. is this is underestimated. And this could be actually a sizable team which does nothing else than the GraphQL, you know, uh, queries, Absolutely. which is uh, which, which is really complex. Yeah. Back to the uh, versioning of the APIs. A big deal. So, um, uh, in my Fed client approach, um, in all projects, you know, there is always they try to version the URI v1. So they write, you know, v1 in the URI. So my question is, what happens in v2? So how you find, you know, the old clients? Why you know that no one uses v1? So it's over. Yep. If you put to the outside world, you know, the v1 once, it's over. So you yep. you have for, or either you know break the clients. Or you need a strategy. And what is the strategy? How many versions you would like to maintain? And even more interesting for Java developers, how the code looks like. It's like you are versioning packages. You have a package yep. v1, v2. So you find that you know, having the same classes all, all over the place. Not that easy. And um, with the data APIs, so I think the, the only approach which works well is to be backwards compatible and have more testing, right? So this yep. is the only survival strategy I think of. But this is also, you know, in one point of time, you will break the API. So this is also yeah. a downside. By the way, do you know Stefan Tilkov, a German? Um, I may. Um, what does he work uh, on? Because you have to look him up. Uh, he, um, I would say as of five to 10 years ago, uh, he he uh, promoted in Europe, in actually worldwide. He's, a, I think, CEO or CTO of InnoQ company. Okay. And uh, he uh, resource uh, oriented architectures. So and and this is absolutely what you exp- uh, what what do you explaining with uh, HTMX? Mm-hmm. This was his idea as well. You know, yeah. uh, do, do this HTML right. Um, yep. uh, sorry, HTML hypertext right. Yep. Um, one question yeah. to you: Why you are so interested in promoting the framework? Well, um, I think it's a. I see a lot of uh, unnecessary complexity in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so um, I am in just you know I, I'm older now as the gray in my beard indicates. Um, yeah, it and... looks like a twenty five. <laughs> yeah, twenty five exactly. Not a day older. Um, but I, you know, I've I've been through I've been through some startups. Um, you know, I've had some successful software companies, um, mm-hmm. and you get to a point where you kind of have to make a choice. You're either gonna am I gonna be kind of a business guru, am I going to do the business thing or am I going to be a developer and be, you know, just be an old developer. And uh, so I've decided I'm going to be an old developer. And uh, one of the nice things about being an old developer is you've seen a lot. 
<laughs> so uh, I just feel like there's, you know, people don't appreciate the web and darn it, they probably should. And so um, that's my motivation mainly. And, uh, you know, the, another big motivator for me is I'm a programming language person. So I, I, I teach the compilers class here. I have built a bunch of programming languages and uh, I particularly early on, like around 2015, I didn't like the fact that JavaScript was kind of rolling over the industry and everything mm-hmm. was, everyone was just using JavaScript for everything. Once Node came along, it was like, well, why would we have a, a front end SPA written in JavaScript and then a back end written in some other language? Why not just use JavaScript on both sides mm-hmm. and now, you know, reuse your logic and all that. And there's a terrible logic to that, um, but it's sure not good for diversity <laughs> of languages. And I like a diversity of languages. I'm not a big Lisp guy, for example, but I'm glad Lisp exists. And I want Lisp people to be able to do web development on the same level as anyone else. And uh, mm-hmm. I am a Java person, and I'd like to be able to do Java web development, um, you know, without being handicapped by this, you know, necessity of managing a large JavaScript uh, code base as well for everything. But JavaScript and- is actually related to Lisp, right? It is, yeah. It's got. I mean, there's, you know, the the scoping and the closures were yeah, exactly. Lisp like, um, but uh, I, I mean, syntactically, it's not. It doesn't feel like Lisp to me. I don't know. Okay, no, no, um, no but um, but uh, you, so. you 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 have no plans to 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 have a, a company around HDMX or you know sell support or whatever. I've got. I mean, I've got Big Sky Software, um, mm-hmm. which is my little consulting company, but. Uh-huh. I it's a, it's BSD licensed. I'm not planning on making any money okay. on it. So I, 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 how how people can hire you on Big Sky Software or what they what I, I think there's a contact there. I don't know. Big Sky let's look. Sky.software. Do I even have a con? I I just sold my software company and so I'm kind of I gotta say maybe not in the best spot as far as like accepting work right now. Um Okay, so um yeah, there's an you email. Need va- you you need vacation, so uh, uh, <laughs> right. I mean, I guess I don't know. I just I always kind of stumble around and like stuff happens. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Okay. Um, so I'm not I'm not the best at you know running a, a, a business, but I've got a, a client that I'm working with right now that I really like, so it's all good. Um, but uh, I am getting sponsored. I have to say for HTMX and a big sponsor that just. Uh, announced a, a month and a little bit ago uh, is JetBrains, so mm-hmm. um, IntelliJ, the IntelliJ folks, um, and they they uh, were had a very generous. They have a very generous open source sponsorship um, mm-hmm. program, and so they're sponsoring HTMX, which I I think I'm very excited about because first of all, it's you know it's nice to get paid to work on your open source projects, um, but uh, it's also really nice because. Um, I think it lends some credibility to the approach. The fact that mm-hmm. JetBrains has said, okay, this is an approach we believe in um, has, has really helped um, mm-hmm. just get it, get it some credibility. Um, but, you know, to get back to my motivations, like, it's at this point, it's like, I just, I don't know. I, I kind of like joking around on the internet. And so it's fun to make fun of JavaScript, just take it down a notch or two sometimes. And, uh, and uh, I do think that there's a, there's sort of a core, network architecture of the web that has been lost particularly among younger developers who all they know is react they don't they don't really know what hypermedia not even is. angular right yeah like they don't <laughs> even know what angular is yeah. they uh they just they view html as this weird kind of janky ui description language that lives in the browser 
and they have to deal with it because it's there, but they don't, you know, they're just never exposed to this. Yeah, everything is a diff, right, for them. Everything's a div, and and I don't blame them, you know. It's just we, the the software industry, hasn't done a great job of explaining the old stuff to new people. It's always Mm -hmm. like, what's the new stuff? And then you just go forward from there. You never (laughs) think about what, what has come along previously. So um, what I found is a consulting link, of course, on yeah. uh, HTMX, and this is HTMX at bigsky.software. So yeah. if uh, someone would like to interrupt your vacations, so feel free <laughs> to ask for work. Yeah, if you and, if you re- if you really want to build a hypermedia, what I call a hypermedia-driven application, yeah, uh, you can give me a ring. Okay, and uh, what um, as. Someone on Twitter said, okay, uh, I, I have to invite you to the podcast because it's, it's mm-hmm. interesting. So I, I did it immediately, but I took a look at the HTMX. Mm-hmm. And my impression was completely different. What I, what I thought is, you are a very young developer <laughs> who created something uh, which is uh, Ruby-like, stimulus-like, and now yeah. would like you know, to start your own company around that. This was funny. Nah. So, yeah. <laughs> and what I also did, I took a look at the uh, source code of HTMX. So... Yeah. Um, and uh, what I liked about that, this is why I, uh, why I immediately invited you, is like um, to my uh, it's like three thousand seven hundred lines of code of yep. JavaScript code with a Java JS doc, and it looks almost like Java. You know how you wrote it; it was understandable <laughs> yeah. for me. So it was like yeah. okay, I get it. So it just looks actually interesting. But this was all right. So this is the is this everything, or I missed some dependencies? No, uh, HTMX is dependency free. It's just one file. Um, I like the old school way the, where you could just include a library in your, yeah. in your page. Perfect. And so there are no transpilations, no, no, no builds. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> None of that stuff. No, no, we're not doing any of that. And uh, this is also what I really don't like at all. The entire build system and all the stuff, I don't even get it. You no, know? uh, in, in, yeah. I just started with ES6 and, and web components. You are a backwards compatible. I saw you, you are using yeah. the older JavaScript. Which yep. I don't like at all. What I really like is yes, six. I try yep. to avoid completely uh, everything which was before, you know, prior yeah. to uh, to yes, six. Yeah, I'm, I write my code in ES five, and it is IE eleven compatible, believe it or not. Um, mm-hmm. But what I found, and I think what you probably saw, is that I I, I adopted a very Java like way of structuring yeah. my code. It's basically sort of functional Java, like because yeah. you don't you don't have objects. Fine, like it's. You can't create classes like you want to, whatever. Um, you can't in ES6, but in ES5 you can't. And so what I did instead was just say, okay, I'm going to write it basically as one big class that has exactly. a bunch of functions on it. And yeah. then, so and I, it's funny because a lot of JavaScript developers look at my code and go, what is this? I can't make any sense of it. Um, but then I find a lot of people who aren't JavaScript developers who take a look at it, they're like, oh, this is very civilized and easy to understand. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I really so. like that. And it is, it, it, no, I, I clicked on GitHub. So this is just for the, for the, for the list. Just go to GitHub and click on your code. Yeah. And for me, it was... Uh, I mean, understandable. I couldn't get yeah. you know, everything, but it, it, I look sure. at the, uh, the functions. Okay, makes sense, and it looks like almost like Java. But um, yeah. it was a uh, yeah. Well, it's it's JavaScript being written by an old Java guy, so uh, that probably makes some sense. There's some aspects of it that like you just can't avoid the junkiness of like the APIs that are available. But uh, for the most part, it's pretty understandable. Yeah, and, prototype uh, and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. But it is. Uh, you know, it's a BSD license, so it's very permissive. I'm not trying to trick anyone into using it. It's just I think it's a 
it's a good way to build yep. software. And I, I, it's, um, at this point, I, I hope it's a community, it's a community tool that, you know, if someone is in Java and doesn't want to write a bunch of JavaScript, but does want, you know, better user experience. One thing we haven't talked about is what can you do with HTMX? So for example, one thing you can do with HTMX is you can implement infinite scroll. Now that's a controversial UX pattern. I get it. Um, but with a few attributes, you could implement infinite scroll in a way that involves very no JavaScript written by you. And that lets you implement that infinite scroll pattern almost entirely server side um, just by generating HTML on the server with the right attributes on it. Um, similarly, you know, another example of something you can do with HTMX with very little code or just HTML attributes is uh, active search, where when you type into uh, a, an input, the results automatically update. They automatically filter as you type. And so there's mm -hmm. a, there are examples. If you go to htmx.org slash examples, um, you can see a, a bunch of different examples of uh, various patterns implemented with HTMX. And, uh, and, and all of them, or in most of them, I should say, there's uh, zero, there's very little and typically zero client-side JavaScript that has been written. Instead, they're just attributes that are written on HTML elements, and then they delegate to the server side to generate the appropriate HTML. That ends up being a pretty effective way to build some uh, fairly dynamic uh, some fairly dynamic user interface uh, elements. Actually, I could put your attributes on custom elements. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I could actually have my web components and yep. then use you know, your operator. This was actually an interesting experiment. Yeah, I know some people who have done it. Um, I just, again, I haven't gotten into that level of need. One thing I will say about HTMX and the hypermedia uh, approach in general is it moves your factoring problem to the back end. So a lot of people who are super component oriented, they look at this and they say, well, how do I test all this? Where are my components? And the answer is, well, here you don't really have as many front end components necessarily. Although it is, you know, if you have true front end needs that don't interact with the server, that's a good ripe problem for a component in my mind in this model. Um, but uh, what you do do is on the back end, you tend to factor your templates out. So if you have a bit of HTML that gets reused in like three or four places, you pull that out to a separate template. And so that's the factoring problem, right? That's where you're trying to take code that is being reused and move it into a central place. And well, so what we it, could do, the comp combination with web components, What there there is... Um... It's called slots, and what you can have, you can have uh, a, a web component, and usually what, uh, and I, th I think it's called not not in HTML but similar. So what I could do is I could use your framework, you know, to mm -hmm. to fetch partial HTML, not the entire yep. body, just the partial, yep. and assign it to a web component, mm -hmm. and then I have my components because I could have you know the infinite scroll just within. Uh, a, a web component, a custom element, and yep. above, I could use your framework again to sh to to show something different, right? So yep. this this I mean this was still you know like um, hypermedia with frames back then, yep. right? So um, yep. this 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 could work, but this, there are yep. no frames; they're just a web components, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And so HTMX is trying to increase the expressivity of HTML, and then as much as yeah. you're working in HTML, you should be able yeah. to use it for whatever you want. Um, because always... uh, you can. 
we used our web components, for instance, to encapsulate a framework, JavaScript framework. So we could integrate yeah. a framework just by using web component. And what I can do in your case, there is no framework, just HTML, even better, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Because um, so I'm, think... I'm using inside the web component, I'm using lit HTML to generate HTML. Okay, yeah. And what I could do is, of course, I could use, you know, your HTMX to pull the HTML markup from the backend, but yeah. it would be actually similar markup in the front end, complete different mm -hmm. architecture, but yep. interesting, it's worth exploring actually. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so, you know, again, and I, I one, one shortcoming of HTMX is that um, because it's trying to improve HTML as a hypermedia, um, mm -hmm. it's, it, you, there's no preferred backend. So there's mm -hmm. no backend that is going to be better at producing HTML. I mean, there, there there are some that are better than others, but it levels the playing field pretty significantly. But that also makes it hard to give demos <laughs> because, um, you know, I have Python developers and Lisp developers, Haskell developers, Java developers all come to me and they say, well, how do I make this work? And it's like, well, you know, here's the tools and here's the basic pattern. Here's an example, but the code, the server side code, unfortunately is written in JavaScript because that's what's available. Um, Cause I mock it out all client side, but um, so it ends up being, I think a little bit more work uh, than, uh, than it would be if it were more tightly integrated. So there's like, you told me, you mentioned Java server faces, right? Mm -hmm. That's an example where there's a really tight integration between a backend and a front end. TurboLinks, yeah. I think has some of this, TurboLinks not as bad, but TurboLinks kind of starts tiptoeing that direction too. And where there's a really tight integration between back and yeah. front end. And you can do a lot of very interesting stuff with this. A uh, great example is LiveView. So LiveView in the PHP community is this really super dynamic way to figure out exactly what gets updated. Very interesting. HTMX is not that. HTMX mm -hmm. is basically just trying to take HTML and level it up a little bit. So give you more functionality out of the box. And that makes it more backend agnostic. Anybody can use it against any framework, but it also means that when you have work to do, uh, when you have something that you need updated, like you've got to, you've got to do the work. Um, so just, well, again, that's one of those design trade-offs I just want to make people aware of uh, when they compare and contrast it with other libraries out there. Yeah, what I would have to say, what also is, what makes it interesting, right? So it's a completely yeah. different approach, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where people can find you? So uh, on the internet. So Big Sky Software already said. Yeah. Twitter? Big Sky. Big Sky Software. Um, HTMX.org um, is also that's the main open source website. Um, yeah. On Twitter, there's uh, HTMX underscore org. That's the Twitter account that I run. I tend to joke around quite a bit on that one, so don't take it too seriously. Um, I don't take things very seriously. So if you're a very serious okay. person, I apologize in advance. Um, but you're gonna see some jokes, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, there's do a, you have a personal Twitter account or no? I don't. I don't. I spend too much time on Twitter as it is. Okay. Um, but uh, there's also if you go to htmx.org/discord, um, there's a that will redirect you to our Discord server for HTMX. Mm -hmm. And I know that's problematic. Not everyone likes Discord, but that's just what we use right now. Discord um, is nice. Chat. Yeah, there's good and bad aspects of it, but we have okay. a pretty active Discord um, and pretty friendly. And so if you you know don't struggle <laughs> with HTMX, if you're having issues, just jump on the Discord and 
there's a lot of really smart people on it. They can help out pretty quick. Unfortunately, uh, you know, like Stack Overflow isn't very heavily populated at this point with HTMX articles uh, or with HTMX questions. And part of that is that HTMX is so simple, it doesn't generate the number of questions that some of these other uh, these some of these other libraries uh, generate. But um, you know, so that's that's basically where where I am, um, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the. Uh, HMX communities, uh, again, I hope, uh, still pretty friendly. I'm sure we'll become embittered at some point, but at this point, we're not. So <laughs> take advantage of us while we're friendly. So it was really nice to meet you. So uh, yeah. interesting discussion. And uh, I, I will try it. So it looks yeah. interesting. And what I like, you know, one file, no transpilations, and uh, back to the roots. Yep, no dependencies. And it's the original, it's the way the web was designed. <laughs> this is the way Perfect. the web was supposed to be. So. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Adam, for having me on.